Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kylie Landusky, a law student at Capital University Law School in Columbus, Ohio, and a fellow with the law school's Family and Youth Law Center, known as Law. I also work as a clerk with the Franklin County Public Defender's Office Felony Unit. My fellowship project is to provide resources to families and educators with information about the school-to-prison pipeline. I'm sure, like me, you've heard of this issue before but may not know exactly what it means. I first turned to the internet for a definition and found that a nonprofit called the Advancement Project is said to have coined the term schoolhouse-to-jailhouse pipeline, a synonym of the now nearly household term school-to-prison pipeline. This project describes the phenomenon as school systems shutting the doors of academic opportunity for students and funneling them unnecessarily into the juvenile and criminal justice system. Put simply, the school-to-prison pipeline connects school disciplinary matters with the juvenile justice system. Such disciplinary matters include detention, truancy, suspension, and expulsion. We'll hear later on about how common behaviors in kids generally take two different paths, so that some kids are so-called nuisances in the classroom, while others are just being kids. The kids that are nuisances more likely go on to face serious disciplinary action. The court system we have today tends to treat certain populations of children as adults, which we can see written into our laws, specifically with regard to transfer of juvenile cases to criminal court. I became interested in this school-to-prison phenomenon after reading and hearing about it in the news, and I began to wonder whether the clients I work with at the public defender that is, those accused of committing felony offenses, have been placed into the criminal justice system through this route from school to prison. So the main question this podcast asks is, is or was there a school to prison pipeline? And what is being done in specifically in the central Ohio area to redirect such a route? How do these kids get to the point that they are pushed out of their schools where they're supposed to be building the fundamental tools for life? Preliminary research and conversations I've had with juvenile justice and education professionals point to childhood trauma as a key contributor to eventual involvement with juvenile and criminal justice systems. A discussion on childhood trauma will be our first stop along the pathway to learning about the school to prison pipeline. Childhood trauma comes in many forms and its continued prevalence has prompted the reimagination of how we work with children in the healthcare field, in the education field, and in our government. We'll then take a look at the education system, where it's said that children are pushed out into what is often another traumatic experience, the juvenile justice system. Some attribute this pipeline to the presence of school resource officers, or perhaps the lack of resources available in their district. Next, you'll hear about the juvenile justice system, which in recent years has been working toward a more rehabilitative rather than punitive approach to addressing delinquency. And finally, we'll see what happens once a youth that's taken this pathway reaches adulthood. Are they often incarcerated? Have they really been rehabilitated as intended by the system we have now? Looking into these four categories, first, childhood trauma, second, the education system, third, the juvenile justice system, and fourth, adulthood, should allow us to make some sense of the school-to-prison pipeline and whether it still exists or this household term needs to be redefined or eliminated from our vocabulary altogether. 
As I began this fellowship project with the law school, I started to see how complicated it really is, especially finding data that connects one institution to another due to privacy concerns and division of authorities responsible for housing the data. It's difficult to find the path of one person throughout the pipeline just by looking at numbers and requires more anecdotal information. That being said, I will be relying on experts to tell me more about all the points along the path that I mentioned, including specialists in various fields such as healthcare, education, and the court system. If you have any questions for me about this podcast, please email me at k-l-a-n-d-u-s-k-y at law.capital.edu, and that should also be in the podcast bio. Thank you. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kylie Landusky, a law student at Capital University Law School in Columbus, Ohio, and a fellow of the law school's Family and Youth Law Center, known as Law. I work as a clerk with the Franklin County Public Defender's Office Felony Unit as well. My fellowship project is to provide resources to families and educators with information about the school-to-prison pipeline. I'm sure, like me, you've heard of this issue before, but you may not know exactly what it means. I first turned to the internet for a definition and found that a nonprofit called the Advancement Project is said to have coined the term schoolhouse to jailhouse pipeline, a synonym of the now nearly household term school to prison pipeline. This project describes the phenomenon as school systems shutting the doors of academic opportunity for students and funneling them unnecessarily into the juvenile and criminal justice system. But simply, the school-to-prison pipeline connects school disciplinary matters with the juvenile justice system. Such disciplinary matters include detention, truancy, suspension, and expulsion. On this episode, I'm speaking with Gina McDowell from Nationwide Children's Hospital about the childhood trauma piece of the school-to-prison pipeline. Nationwide Children's Hospital opened its Behavioral Health Pavilion, the Big Lots Behavioral Health Pavilion, in March of last year, thanks to a $50 million donation from Big Lots. It has nine floors, two of which are inpatient floors where kids actually stay when they need treatment on site. The top floor, the ninth floor, has a gym and an outdoor play deck that I personally would love to visit. The pavilion assists children with a variety of conditions and describes its key services as psychiatry, developmental and behavioral pediatrics, the Childhood Development Center and Center for Autism Spectrum Disorders, pediatric psychology and neuropsychology, crisis services, inpatient services, community-based services, outpatient services such as the Eating Disorders Program, and prevention services such as the Suicide Prevention and Research Program. Gina is a licensed professional clinical counselor at the Big Lots Behavioral Health Services Division of Nationwide Children's Hospital. She is also a clinical educator and coordinates educational trainings for the Nationwide Children's Hospital Behavioral Health staff. And she's been on other podcasts before, including PediaCast. Uh, episode 458 about mental fitness during a pandemic, which I believe a doctor from Nationwide provided and I found very helpful. So Gina, welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me so that we can learn more about this wonderful resource. It is the Nationwide Children's Big Lots Behavioral Health Pavilion, which we are going to call from here on out BHP. Thanks for that tip. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for having me. Yeah. 
I'll be honest. Uh, I took a tour, a virtual tour of the pavilion and I was getting a little bit choked up. It is really just so beautiful. It makes me so proud of my city for having an accommodating place for our kids to address their mental and behavioral health issues. And it seems to truly encompass just a breath of fresh air, um, something that you need. And um, if you're listening and you haven't checked out the tour of the BHP, find it on nationwidechildrens.org and YouTube, I highly recommend. Um, so could you start off by telling me a little bit about how the BHP started at Nationwide Children's and where the idea for the division started, where it is now, where it's going, um, in terms of addressing emotional, behavioral, and developmental issues among children? Absolutely, and I agree with you. Um, I've, you know, I was very involved with um, the orientation to the building, and even still, when I watch that that virtual tour and that video, I still get a little choked up too. Just, we're very, very proud um, of of that building. So I'm right there with you. I definitely think it's it's worth checking out online. Um, so back in 2016, Nationwide Children's Hospital announced their plan to expand care and research and actually transform behavioral health treatment as a whole, um, which was huge. Um, for um, for the work that we do, um, and with our with the help of our dear friends over at Big Lots, um, the Big Lots Behavioral Health Pavilion was born and opened on March 10th of 2020. The building really serves as a symbol of the hospital's efforts to break the stigma around mental health treatment and um, provide this bright and welcoming environment for those patients and those families that are seeking services. Um, you talked a little bit about that when you watch the video. You can see the bright colors, the the natural lighting, um, you know, outdoor areas, and these are just really welcoming spaces um, and very calming spaces for families. Um, the, as you said, the pavilion offers multiple levels of care, ranging from our crisis services all the way to ambulatory care. Um, the services housed within the building continue to expand. So even since we've opened um, on March 10th, we've actually continued to, to grow and add programs just within the building itself. Um, I do think it's important to note, though, that the although the pavilion is massive and it contains numerous programs and it's kind of our kind of our cornerstone, um, it's actually it actually only represents about nine percent of the work that's done within behavioral health services at Nationwide Children's Hospital. We have several other programs, um, both in other areas of downtown, main campus, um, even different buildings over on Main Street. And then we also have other offsite locations in central Ohio and like Dublin, Westerville and Reynoldsburg. So um, although the pavilion is um, kind of our, our heart, the heart of it all, it's actually it actually only represents a small amount of the services that we we provide out in the community. Wow, that is fantastic. And I know I have a question about one of our community um, providers as well that's connected with you. Um, yeah. But it's amazing to think that that great big building is just, um, you know, a percentage of, of the big network that you have in the area. It's great. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I guess getting a little more narrow, what is your role um, with the hospital? What does it look like for you day to day? 
As a clinical educator, my current role now, um, I work with my teammates to coordinate and offer numerous continuing education opportunities for our clinical staff. Um, the ongoing education really helps to ensure that our clinicians are using um, most up-to-date evidence-based practice when they're working with their patients and families. In my previous role as a clinical counselor, I worked primarily with youth experiencing emotional dysregulation or trauma-related symptoms. So I've been able to um, continue to, you know, to, to carry on some of that area of specialization and some of the education I've been able to provide, um, you know, so working with these populations, how to adapt, how to adapt practices. Um, if, if someone is, um, working with these youth, not only even, and maybe not only in the, um, therapy realm, but even in, um, some other areas of the hospital too, some of the medical areas, uh, have, you know, they seek out education, um, on these topics. So we, we provide, um, just like I said, different educational opportunities that, that help our staff work with our patients, just both inside behavioral health and outside behavioral health in the medical world as well. Okay. And I'm guessing this isn't your first job. Um, no. <laughs> so, so you've been doing this for a while before you came to Nationwide and I'm, I'm wondering how since Nationwide, uh, the BHP has started kind of in the wake of this pandemic thing and has opened, um, what does that look like for you as far as, you know, just a, a professional, um, and then, uh, starting out, you know, this new, um, opportunity for the area, uh, in such different times. <laughs> it, it definitely is different. It, it was a big shift in March. Um, you know, we were, again, we're lucky that we work with an organization that is, we you know, we, 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 one of our values is being agile and innovative. And I truly feel in the past year, we, we have lived up to that, to that uh, statement um, because we were able to quickly switch over to telehealth for a lot of our outpatient services. Actually, for all of our outpatient services, um, we switched over to a virtual world so we could um, make sure that we were continuing to provide that care for our families. Um, it was interesting because the pavilion opened on March 10th and two days later, <laughs> several of us ended up um, going home. It was very interesting. Uh, we had this, this, a lot of, a lot of events, uh, you know, leading up to the opening and then, and then it was a very quiet building <laughs> for a while, but our right. crisis department, our psychiatric crisis department kept running our inpatient units and our youth crisis stabilization unit. Um, all of our, acute services on main campus, everyone kept running um, in person, keeping everyone as safe wow. as possible. Um, but then, like I said, our ambulatory services switched pretty quickly over to telehealth, which was a huge, um, a, a huge thing to tackle for our staff. We had not done telehealth previously. Um, and so we were able to switch our you know, our psychiatrists and our clinical our therapy staff to, to telehealth. And, um, you know, we're, we're now coming, starting to do some in-person things again. Um, but I just really applaud the staff for being so flexible and able to, to switch in these times. So, yes. So I guess my, back to your, back to your point, um, the, the, process and the the way that care is provided now does look significantly different than when I started. I actually started at Children's a little over six years ago. So, um, so a lot has changed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I can only imagine um, all of the changes going into that. And I have to applaud you all as well, because I can't imagine 
how much of a change that would be. Um, and just in your day to day to day work, being familiar with talking, you know, in person with your patients, you have those nonverbal cues and all those things and um, switching over to telehealth is I'm sure was uh, very necessary um, for a lot of folks during this time. So thank you uh, for all that you and Nationwide have done um, uh, for our kids and our families. Um, that brings me, I guess, to my next question. So how do kids come to be patients um, at the BHP and are they most often referred by other divisions, by teachers, by social workers, by the court, or even by their parents? I would say all of the above um, and both inside and outside of the of the BHP. Um, many families, uh, you know, many families do seek out services on their own. Caregivers are are you know, looking for services, maybe they were recommended by the school or they've started noticing behaviors at home that they want to address. So it's it's very common for families to seek out services on their own through our intake department. Um, a majority of those families, I would say, are probably typically placed with the outpatient um, office-based or community-based services that we offer. Um, so folks that are going into the homes and schools. Um, but we also have several families who are referred by uh, maybe other medical providers. So maybe their primary care physician um, has has noticed something and, and has referred them over to behavioral health, um, or they might be seen by another medical clinic within the hospital. Um, some kids also enter our system through our crisis services, which is that would be the, the behavioral health pavilion, the BHP. Um, this would really kind of that that entry that entryway is the psychiatric crisis department in the pavilion, which is um, a brand. It's actually a brand new department that we just opened back in March when the building opened. Um, they they used to be housed, uh, that team used to be housed over in the emergency department of main campus, medical campus. Um, but now we actually even have this, this whole department that serves as an emergency room for psychiatric needs. So we do have kids who are brought in um, or come in in a state of crisis, and then they are assessed in that crisis department, and then it's determined whether we can, you know, safety plan and send them home safely, then provide them with, you know, link them with services um, ongoing, or if maybe they need to stay with us and we can send them, um, you know, we can, we can transfer them up to our inpatient, one of our inpatient units um, um, or one of our other, we have a couple different um, acute services that we can also link them with if we, they just need to stay with us a little bit longer. So those are some of the different areas that they that they generally that kids generally link with us but as you as you mentioned we also have a team that works directly with the court systems um and what they do is they complete assessments for those youth who are referred um as needing behavioral health care and then they can uh, from the courts and then they they provide the assessment they determine um what service would be the best fit for this family um we try to you know link them within our behavioral health services if we can. If if not, we do have, and I'm sure we'll probably hit on this in a little bit, but we have community providers too that we um that we partner with. So we do have, we we definitely have kids and families that enter our system through that direction as well. Okay, great. Um, and of course that's not just Franklin County, um, you know, Correct. where the actual nationwide uh BHP is, but it's also uh, you know, throughout Ohio and maybe even out of state. 
Um, yes, I would say for the court system, that team partners directly with Franklin County, but okay. we absolutely have people out of county coming into our system, um, you know, what, through one of those other routes. Um, out of state, it would probably be less um, less common. I'm not going to say it doesn't happen, though. It does. Mm-hmm. It absolutely does happen with some of our outpatient services. Um, but what we we like to be able to do too, if somebody is living pretty far away, and um, you know it, 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 if it's providing a barrier to treatment, we like to try to see if we can link them with services that are closer to their home, just to kind of remove some of those barriers. But we definitely work with a lot of families outside of Franklin County. Um, you know, in some of the more rural areas where there might not be a lot of services, um, they they absolutely come come to see us. Yeah, of course. Um, I actually have a family that works in the emergency department, so uh, yeah. I thought of them when you mentioned uh, just how the intake piece has kind of shifted. Um, where if there there's a child that might be having more of a um, behavioral or emotional um, type of emergency that they would be uh, transferred over to BHP rather than main campus. I think mm-hmm. that's fantastic. Um, it makes me wonder what, you know, the differences in training is because um, I, I heard all about their training when they first started over at Nationwide. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, so that that's interesting stuff. Um, Well, so this podcast was created to discuss a system that has kind of failed kids insofar as addressing the trauma they carry, and it can lead to issues in school that could ultimately result in these children becoming part of the juvenile justice system, Um, and kids kind of seem to be carrying their traumas often without a lot of tools to deal with them, only to then kind of act out and be deemed disruptive or unruly in schools and experience maybe more trauma um, in being disciplined or perhaps maybe not even attending school and piling on the trauma at home and ultimately getting pushed into the court system. Um, Of course, we heard a little bit about how the court system then um, brings children to your care, um, which is great. But do you think the creation of a hospital branch like this one, one that's specifically focused on behavioral health brings to the, what do you think it brings to the table in addressing that issue with kids um, kind of being deemed unruly or disruptive in their schools? I think that's a great question and a great point to make. We definitely know that trauma presents itself in so many different ways in children. And oftentimes, um, as you mentioned, it's not uncommon for trauma to look like something like disruptive behavior, sometimes even aggression. Um, we also see, you know, we kind of see a lot of kids experiencing that fight, flight, or freeze response. Um, and it, it gets interpreted as, as being disruptive or as being oppositional or things like that. And, um, you know, depending on what interventions are applied, um, you know, really depend that, that, that determines whether or not the root cause is actually going to be be addressed. Um, so at Children's, we actually have several programs within behavioral health that, you know, the programs as a whole specialize in the treatment of trauma. Um, we also have um, clinicians that are trained in, in trauma treatment models that are sprinkled throughout the entire system as a whole. Um, and the idea is then 
you know, to provide children with the support and the coping strategies that they need to, to work through and manage some of these trauma related symptoms that they that they might be experiencing. And not only do these these evidence based treatment approaches focus on the child themselves, but it also involves a lot of psychoeducation and caregiver involvement to really help the families heal as a whole, um, depending on the caregivers experience with trauma or, you know, what what their their previous experiences have been might determine on kind of what their um, definition of trauma looks like or really understanding what what happens um, with trauma. We know that trauma at certain stages of development um, actually impacts brain development, you know, and so these are all things that we can help the family um, help the family understand as a whole and to help them work through some of these things um, and then providing them with tools to manage some of these behaviors that they might be seeing in a way that we would like to be able to then, um, you know, intervene early. So we can, we can catch these, you know, we can, we can catch these things early and hopefully, um, you know, to start to see a decrease of those types of, those types of symptoms. Um, I noted before that we also have that team that partners with the juvenile justice system, that group of clinicians, they assess a family and chi a child and family's needs in order to place them in the treatment program that will help prevent future involvement with the legal system. Um, so I, I really see that as kind of our, that that's our goal is to intervene in order to prevent future involvement. Uh, we have several other specializations within our system that, that often address trauma related symptoms as well, including co-occurring substance use disorders, family systems therapy, and early childhood treatment. Um, you know, but we also refer to other partners within the community if we're if we're not able to accommodate the family's needs within our system based on what they what they need. Um, but the goal is to link these children and families with the right services in order to address the underlying mental health concerns related to behaviors that could potentially result in future encounters with the legal system. Um, and, and oftentimes, more often than not, that is absolutely related to trauma. You, you mentioned um, brain development and um, yeah, I'm no expert in it. I did a little bit of research into the impact of trauma on um, childhood brain development. Would you mind indulging me in explaining a little bit about that, how it's possible that a traumatic experience um, or a series of traumatic experience might impact the health of a child um, in their development? Sure. Um, yes. Yeah, so there's, you know, I think the main thing to think about here is the high levels of stress that are that that are that someone is experiencing if they are experiencing a traumatic event. Um, and what what happens with trauma is that, you know, we I always talk about the fight, flight or freeze response. You know, we need that in order to survive. Right. Like if we if we are encountering a true danger in our life um, and, you know, so I use the example, if you're crossing a street and you see a bus coming. You need that fight or flight response to kick in and to say, hey, get out of the street and move. You don't want to, you know, have to have to sit there and think about whether or not you should move. Right. So you want to be yes. able to have that rush of adrenaline, have that heightened stress level and get get you out of harm's way. Well, with what happens with trauma is that this heightened level of stress occurs. And then especially for children at certain developmental levels, that high, high level of stress, that it truly does impact um, the, the function, the function of the brain and the development of the brain, um, depending on what 
what level, what stage of development that child is at too. Um, we can see certain um, nuances at different different stages. But then it's it, what ends up happening is that the brain then starts to kind of constantly live in this fight, flight, or freeze mode. So it's actually reacting to situations that aren't true danger. Um, so the brain is, is, is perceiving things as dangerous that might not actually, they might be triggers and, and, um, and triggering some of those emotional responses, but the situation itself might not truly be dangerous. However, the brain is still kind of stuck in that mode from where it um, experienced trauma or maybe even ongoing trauma. You know, I'm thinking of kids who might live in, in violent homes or have sustained a significant amount of abuse. You know, their brain is constantly in that level of high stress, that level of high experiencing those high levels of fear. Um, constantly in that fight, flight, or freeze mode. And so, as you know, again, as adults, even adults experience this as well, but for a child who's still developing too, um, you know, their brain is really kind of like learning, uh, learning these, um, these patterns. And, um, you know, then as they start to, as they start to grow older, we really start to see this manifest in some of the behaviors that they're, ex they're, they're exhibiting and in situations that, like I said, are, are not truly dangerous and don't pose a threat. And uh, does that answer your question? Does that, yeah, no, that is very helpful. Um, and it, it makes me wonder because in, um, juvenile law, there's a little historically, there's been a little bit of a distinction between ages of kids. Um, so there's something called the rule of sevens. Um, where basically if you're under the age of seven, you're um, presumed not culpable for your conduct. Um, if you're between the ages of seven and 14, I'm probably saying this wrong, then I think there's a rebuttable presumption um, that you are not culpable for your conduct. In 14 and up, um, I, I believe there's still the presumption, um, but you're more likely, you know, to be found culpable after your 14 years of age. Um, so, and I wonder if that relates at all to a bit of that brain development piece where um, perhaps past the age of 14, not to say it's hopeless, but um, at that point, if a child has sustained a lot of trauma, um, is that one of those kind of marker ages um, where um, treatment might be less effective perhaps on the child? Um, I wouldn't say it's less effective um, given we know that the brain continues to develop until mid-20s. However, I will say if it has been, you know, just for example, if it's been 14 years of sustained trauma, you know, very complex trauma, it's very, it, it probably would say it's more challenging, especially when we're coming, thinking from like an environmental standpoint too. Um, you know, if that's all that child has known up until okay. 14, um, it can very, very much be a a, a larger challenge um, because, you know, a lot of the things, you know, I've seen this with some of the kids that I've worked with too, you know, there might be maladaptive coping skills that have been developed too. And, um, you know, that, that's been a, that's been a coping mechanism and a survival strategy. Um, but 
you know, now those things are a little bit more ingrained and yes, it it can be more challenging. Um, I wouldn't say that necessarily the, um, the, uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? The success rate is necessarily lower, but it, it can absolutely be more challenging. And if we, if we're also taking into account, like all of the environmental factors that could possibly be involved too, um, you know, there's, there might just be a lot of different pieces to, to be working through um, at that point. Um, because I think where, where a lot of parents and caregivers, um, you know, say that the, say that some of their biggest challenges is that when they were seven, it was a lot easier to, discipline them as opposed to when they're 17, um, you know, and, you know, I, I've heard that from parents before, like they're bigger than me now that I can't, you know, it's, it's not as easy to just take things away. And, um, you know, if, if things become aggressive, it's a whole, you know, it's much different than if they became aggressive as a, as a seven-year-old. So there are absolutely things that become more challenging, obviously as, um, with the, with the teens for sure. Okay. Thanks for answering that question. I know it was kind of hard for me to formulate it. <laughs> <That's okay>. um, <laughs> um, it's super interesting though, the brain development piece of it. And I think one of our other podcast guests will also be telling us a little bit more about that. Um, he's worked in school systems and um, and also at uh, the Department of Youth Services. So nice. yeah, yeah. Um, so that will be interesting. Um so but I think, you know, um, despite what I just mentioned about there potentially being some hopelessness um, in addressing the issues, uh, behavioral issues with kids, I think that we're all hopeful that places like the BHP will pave the way toward a brighter outcome for our kids. And I wonder if you have any success stories that come to mind that you could share with us um, to keep us looking forward. Of course, I know uh, being HIPAA compliant can't be very uh, specific with those. (laughs) Yeah, I can't share information on specific cases, but I I can absolutely say that um, I have been amazed by the resiliency and the bravery that I've seen in, in so many of the kids that I have worked with um, as they have worked through their trauma. Um, some really having some significant barriers too um, and still being able to push through and, and work through that trauma and just, and just doing very, very well and being successful. Um, addressing trauma is is not an easy task. It's not an easy task for, for adults <laughs> either. Um, and, you know, and I've seen many kids um, and teens work through some emotions that they never thought that they could, um, you know, and, and many that kind of what you had been describing as presenting as aggression or disruptive behavior or things like that, where they might've even been labeled a certain way in school based on behaviors. And um, I've seen them work through things that um, were just, were just amazing. And I've been lucky enough to actually run into some past patients before when they've been at the hospital for other reasons, um, you know, and just kind of like running into them in the halls. And it's such a good feeling to see them in here about the, and some of the continued achievements that, um, that they're, that they've, that they've made and that they're doing well, you know, it's, I've, I've seen some that's been so exciting to hear that they're graduating high school when, you know, that, that might've been something that we were concerned about at, at a point, you know? And so, uh, so that's been really, I've been really lucky, lucky to been able to, to see some of them when they've, they've come to the hospital. So yes, um, there are absolutely success stories out there. And um, I am just one of many 
of the therapists that work with these these folks. So I'm I'm sure I could we could probably be here all day to hear about the success stories that are out there. So that's fantastic. That makes me so happy to think about um, maybe not being back at the hospital, but seeing them back at the hospital for a different purpose yeah. and just knowing they're doing well and and seeing them. That's great. Um, Okay. And then, so yeah, we had talked earlier a little bit about um, just kind of connecting with community partners um, in the area. And I know you guys have a long list of community (laughs) partners, which, um, (laughs) yeah, if I went through all of them, it would take quite some time. Um, (laughs) But I was excited to see that one of them is Buckeye Ranch. And uh, that's a perfect segue into what we'll be learning about on the next episode. Um, and that'll be more about Buckeye Ranch's work in um, a podcast with one of their transitional age youth advocates, Sierra Williams. Um, so I, I swear my world just gets smaller and smaller. Um, <laughs> there's always uh, somebody knows someone that I know and um, connections, especially through making this podcast, have been um, really, uh, really cool. Just shrinking my world. Um, but how does how does the pavilion utilize those community partners like Buckeye Ranch to keep supporting our kids? I know you addressed it a little bit earlier, but if you could maybe dive in a little bit more in detail. Yes, we love our friends at the Buckeye Ranch. We definitely partner with them a lot. Um, And we partner with other agencies in the community to, again, you know, as I said, to provide the best care to our families. Um, I'll use Buckeye Ranch as an example. If if we assess a family's needs, especially that that program um, that I would, you know, that works with our juvenile, that works with the juvenile justice system. If if they are assess someone and they great, they feel they would greatly benefit from multi systemic therapy, which is actually a therapy model that. works with families um, of at-risk youth. So that's a, it's an amazing model, but we don't offer it at children's anymore. We used to have a program, but now Buckeye Ranch is the one, is the the agency in the community that offers this, this therapy model. So if we assess a, a, fam, a child and we identify that multi-systemic therapy would be what would be best for them, we can then refer to Buckeye Ranch um, since this is not a, a service that we provide. So we make sure that that family is getting what they need. Um, additionally, you know, for other other community providers too, if a family requires a certain level of care and, you know, wait lists, sadly, wait lists are, are fairly long for some of our programs. Um, and if the specific program that that family needs is is very long, what we'll, we can do sometimes is lean on some of our community partners to then find similar services for that family as soon as possible so they're not having to wait an extended amount of time to get help. Um, and finally, some of our families, I mentioned this before, might live in rural areas outside of Columbus. Um, sometimes that doesn't provide a barrier for treatment, but um, there are times where it could potentially provide a barrier to ongoing care. Um, You know, thinking about like if the program is here downtown Columbus and a family might live over an hour away, um, being able to, um, you know, drive downtown every week or every, you know, every other week that may or may not be feasible. You know, luckily telehealth is actually like, you know, uh, 
bridge the gap on that a little bit. Um, but there still are times where families can just really benefit from that in-home service and we might not be able to provide it outside of Franklin County. So we partner with agencies outside of Franklin County as well in order to um, try and link families with services closer to their home. So we truly lean on our community partners as a, a lot. And as you mentioned, we have a, a really long list, um, which is which is great in order to make sure that we can we can get families the care that they need. That is fantastic. And it sounds a little bit um, almost like a referral, but maybe a little bit of outsourcing as well. Like you said, just kind of um, if there's not enough space, um, not enough mm-hmm. opportunity um, within BHP, then we can lean on our community partners. I think that's fantastic. Um, uh, I told you a little bit earlier, I worked at the Make-A-Wish Foundation before law school. Um, I worked with the volunteers. And so each child meets with two volunteers um, who ask them about their wish. Um, and so that that has been um, a gap that we've had for a while in our rural areas um, that I know, I mean, since I departed, but um, uh, recently the the pandemic actually offered a little bit of an opportunity to do um, virtual uh, wish grantor trainings and then virtual um, wish grantor meetings with their wish kids. So then, um, yeah, so that that's been, um, you know, a a blessing to come out of the whole situation. Um, And it it kind of reminds me a little bit about about this and and just reaching rural populations. in a different way. So it's fantastic. Yeah. Um, so my final question for you is, um, what can the average person and maybe even more specifically, um, aspiring attorneys like me do to support your work and the work of your partners and in BHP and helping our kids? I would say keep spreading awareness just as you're doing, um, and breaking the stigma around mental health you know, luckily over the past few years, it has become more of a conversation, um, but previously it might not have been. And there still is stigma around around mental health that um, we we hope to con- continue, you know, continue to try and eliminate one day. Um, but behavior is, knowing that behavior is often a form of communication, um, you know, for all of us, but especially kids. And it's so important to address the mental and the emotional impacts that have have contributed to a child's situation, which is probably what is contributing to their behavior. So if we can continue to have conversations around mental health and, um, you know, and childhood trauma and how all of this is tied together, we can definitely increase the understanding and in turn create more opportunities to find children the help that they actually need um, and hopes to, as you said, you know, as you mentioned, to to keep them out of the legal system um, and um, or, or prevent future future involvement with the legal system, just really getting them the supports that they need um, in order to be successful later on. Of course. And um, in for the average kind of lay person who might be looking for resources on how to be more trauma informed um, just in their own life or in the lives of their kids or kids they care about, um, is there anywhere in particular you would direct them um, to, to look I would, I would say um, we do have some, um, some videos on onoursleeves.org, um, especially talking about, um, you know, talking about just breaking the stigma around mental health 
um, in general. And um, we actually have a video on there for caregivers too, to how to be a trauma-informed caregiver. So I would definitely recommend going to the On Our Sleeves website. Um, another good resource for um, to get some additional psychoeducation on trauma and the impacts of trauma, I would recommend the National Child Traumatic Stress Network. National Child Traumatic Stress Network, sorry. Um, okay. Their website is fantastic. They have lots of online resources, um, both for caregivers, for, for providers, um, some, you know, just different, different, um, even training opportunities, things like that. So I think it would be, it, you know, I actually use that for parents even to give them um some psychoed around, you know, what is a trauma reaction? Like what, what do we tend to see? And so I feel like that's a really good resource as well. That's great. Yeah. I think, I think when, if, if people are like me and I think there are a lot of people like me that when they need, um, help with how to do something, they just look it up on YouTube or, uh, (laughs) or on Spotify, maybe for a podcast. So, um, that's super helpful. Uh, as far as, the on your sleeves movement. And I wanted to, because I know that you of course know a lot about this. And, um, I spoke a little bit with one of your colleagues, uh, Dr. Parker Huston, um, about, about that, um, before I, I got connected to you, but would you mind telling us a little bit more about on your sleeves and, and what that movement is? Yes. Um, it on our sleeves is a, an initiative and actually like you said a movement that started um little over 2 years ago and it really truly the 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 goal behind it was to break that stigma around mental health around childhood mental health um you know you you may have seen the the statement you know kids because kids don't wear their their thoughts on their sleeves and it it really is true. Um, we it really focuses on how to have these conversations with your kids to normalize discussions around mental health. Um, on our sleeves provides the website provides numerous resources for families um, on various topics. We actually have a YouTube channel um, that we talk about just little tips for parents. Um, it's one is released every other week, um, and you know ranging from how to, you know, help your child practice gratitude to, you know, what, what can I expect in, in a therapy session? You know, so there's, there are a lot of different resources for families. So the idea is to, the idea has always been to break the stigma around mental health and to provide this, this database and this, um, this, like this one-stop shop for all of these free educational resources for families to make it more accessible. That's wonderful. And um, yeah, I've seen um, just with the marketing and branding of all of that has been really great in the area. Um, I think I've seen some homage t-shirts with on your sleeves and yes, and, um, and, you know, lots of signage and and great stuff for that. So um, of course, you know, the purpose of this podcast is to provide more resources, you know, um, to folks. So I think knowing that those resources are available too is, is so helpful. So thank you. Yeah, definitely. And check out the YouTube channel and, and the, the website, like I said, there's, there's, there are lots of reading materials on lots of videos, um, you know, just lots of different, different opportunities for families to gain some of that free educational content. 
Great. Well, Gina, thank you again for your time today and helping us learn more about our community and addressing childhood trauma. Uh, once the pandemic ends, I think I'll just need to probably hop on over to uh, BHP and check out that playground and <laughs> yes, maybe let me know. We would love to have yeah. you. Yes, <laughs> we'd love to have you. We love we love to do tours. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. And um, I guess I will leave you here. Have a great rest of your week. Thank you. You too.